right, the text for today's message is found in Matthew 23, as our brother Lance read. Uh, if you're open there, specifically we'll be looking at verses 8 through 10. And so I'd like to just read those three verses again, as we've already had the context set for us. Matthew 23, verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. With these few words, Jesus completely dismantled the religious system of the day, which relied heavily upon religious leaders to guide and protect the people. So our tendency is often to think when we look back at history, whether it's the first century or other times in church history or even just history in general, that had we been there, had we been there in the first century, we would have recognized the Pharisees for what they were. We would have been able to tell that they were leading the people astray. We think that if we were born 30 years before Jesus, we would have been saying the same things that he was saying. We think this with many areas of history, that if we would have been there, we would have known better. And perhaps we would have, but I think sometimes we wouldn't have. Perhaps we would have been as blind, if you will, as everyone else. You see, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, the overseers, the pastors, if you will, of the religious community in Israel. They actually had great favor with the people. They were not viewed by the majority as wicked people who needed to be confronted. They were viewed as the protectors of orthodoxy, the teachers, the instructors, who would help the people understand God's word. And their system that they set up was not generally viewed as being in need of reform. Now Jesus came on the scene and he questioned the status quo. The status quo is simply the way that things are done, the current state of affairs. Jesus came on the scene and questioned that. And so Christians of all people should be willing to question the status quo, the way things are being done. And that's something I've seen in my life and has been somewhat frustrating that of all people, Christians should be willing to challenge in their minds and think about, is the way things are being done the way that they should be done? Do they conform to Scripture? We should be willing to examine everything in the home, in the church, in the state, and to see whether it conforms with Scripture. And so Christians should be very willing to question the status quo, even as it relates to precious institutions as the church and so on. So Jesus came on and he denounced not just the group of people, these leaders, but also the system of thought and the religious and spiritual worldview that was precious to those people and to the, to the masses as well. Remember, the Pharisees, as I said, had great influence over the people. They influenced the people to the point that they influenced them to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 27, 20 says, Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. These religious leaders were able to influence the people to kill the man of perfect righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were not despised by the people. So the Pharisees... These religious leaders were not despised by the people as the Romans were or as the tax collectors were. The people looked up to them because they bought into the system that they needed them to guide and protect them and provide them with spiritual wisdom. 
And so when Jesus came on the scene and called out these religious leaders, it would be like today if a man came on the scene and questioned their current religious system in America. He came on the scene, didn't call out President Obama, President Trump, though there's a time for that, but he came and he called out the pastors and the system that was set up. And I'm not just talking about Benny Hinn or Joel Osteen. He came and called out the system set up by many of those who are considered orthodox and conservative and said that that system's not working. It's broken, and we need to change it. And that's what Jesus did. He came on the scene, and he called out the system that was set up in the land. And he, Jesus is so wise. You see, he has knowledge and wisdom. Many religious leaders have knowledge, but not wisdom. They know the truth, but they can't apply it. And Jesus applied the truth to situations and circumstances, to systems and practices, to traditions and structures, and was willing to question the status quo. And so as I thought about these words in Matthew 23 and, and how Jesus called out the system, and, he, and he, he spoke to the masses, he spoke to the multitudes, it says, to the crowds, I began to understand why these leaders opposed Jesus so much. You know, sometimes we think, man, why were they, they, they hated him so much and they opposed him so much? But I think if we consider this more, we'll understand that there was a system of religion in the land of Israel that gave great importance to the teachers, to the overseers, to the instructors of God's word. And the people, the common folk, embraced that, that worldview that they needed the rabbis to guide them and for the rabbis to do the hard work of understanding God's word and then to help the people and, and, and guide the people. Religious leaders, these leaders established schools and titles and degrees, if you will, that they could confer on others. And they saw their role of great importance to protect the people and guard the word of God. And Jesus came along and he questioned their entire system and they were threatened. They were very threatened by that. Perhaps they would even couch it in these terms. Well, Jesus will lead the people astray. He's not going through the proper channels. He's not qualified to teach the Word of God. He must respect our current system that we have set up. And the same thing happened when Paul abandoned their religious system in favor of Christ's. And what did Paul do? He took the Scriptures, the Jewish Scriptures of the Old Testament at the time. The New Testament was just being written. And he took those Scriptures and he expounded them far and wide, outside the proper channels that the religious leaders have set up. And, here's the thing, he taught others to do the same. Just as he told Timothy to teach faithful men who can teach others, Paul taught men who didn't go to the religious leaders' school, didn't, weren't endorsed by the Pharisees, didn't abide by their system, and of course the Pharisees would be threatened by that. So what I would like to do now is something a little different. Uh, I'd like to start with application from this text and then go back at the end, and explain a little bit more of these three verses. You see, it's often a person's fruit that is experienced before his beliefs are exposed. A tree's fruit is often the first thing that's experienced before a man considers the network of roots and branches and leaves and considers them scientifically and biologically. And so it is with many Bible doctrines. Men first encounter a doctrine, perhaps unwittingly, not in the library of their mind, but in the theater of their senses. They experience the fruit of the doctrine before they fully grasp the content of it. That's not to say that our mind is subservient to our experiences. We are to test all things by our mind. But it's just to say that God has set it up, that we often experience 
the truth of a Bible doctrine before we even fully understand what it means. And I often think of John 7.17 where Jesus says, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking of my own authority. So if you obey the word of God, if you're willing to do it, you will know that it is true. Just like someone who goes to school and studies um, fire and heat and and burns and and third-degree burns and knows all about them. But yet, even a child who experiences a burn and experiences fire knows that truth more than that man who's, who's studied it. And in marriage, those who will, for example, in marriage, if you obey the Word of God and you put it into practice in your marriage, you will know that the Word of God is true because of the blessings and the fruit that it brings in your marriage. So if you follow God's will, if you experience the fruit of obedience to God's Word, you will know experientially that God's Word is true. And so briefly, and this is a bit different as we're talking about the church and and religion and true religion, I want us to consider the outcome of this doctrine which Jesus, we could be summarized as Jesus telling them to abandon that religious system of rabbi, instructor, and teacher, and, and relying upon these men and titles. And Let's consider the outcome of this doctrine being applied in history, and then I'll step back briefly and uh, look at the doctrine a little bit more. So, what happens when men embrace the truth of these words found here in Matthew 23, 8-10? You are not to be called rabbi. We're all brothers. What happens when that's embraced? When the essence of that teaching is applied to the church, when the kernel, the core, the heart of what Jesus is saying, because he speaks in harsh terms many times or um, hyperbole, right? If your eye causes you to sin, uh, pluck it out. Call no one father. We'll look at that. There is an essence where we still call someone father. But Jesus is speaking in hyperbole, but there is a core and a heart to this truth that needs to be applied, that we must not gloss over and say, well, that's just hyperbole. Um, So, what happens when the heart of this teaching is applied? What happens when men and women no longer look to the approved, official religious leaders of their day? What happens when boys and girls are taught to study the Word of God for themselves and are taught to be dependent on no man? After all, isn't that what maturity is? Spiritual maturity is an important theme in the Scripture is that you don't need to depend on someone else. We want our children to reach maturity so that they don't depend on us for food and clothing and taking care of themselves. We teach them now. We're teaching them how to become adults and be mature so that they are dependent on no man. And so what happens when we teach them to do that spiritually? What happens when men realize that they need not wait for the approval and blessing of the religious masters, instructors, and guides of the day in order to teach others and further the kingdom of Christ? So let's consider that. What happens in history when that happens? And I only look at two examples for the sake of time, and we'll begin with the first century. Now, the work that Jesus began was carried on by Peter, John, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and many others, men of all backgrounds, statuses, serving the church in word, in deed. Many who met no other qualifications than the biblical ones. And you've got to think about this. With, with a message so important, think about today if, and I don't believe that we need any more revelation, but just entertain me. If, we need, if God wanted to give another revelation, and he wanted to entrust a message to people today, you know, who would he choose? 
We often think, well, he would choose those conservative theologians in the seminaries. You know, he would choose those people who are, who have the MDivs and the PhDs and who are, who are, who know the scriptures better than the common people, and he would trust it to them so that they could disseminate it to us. But he didn't do that in the first century. The most precious message of all, the gospel of Jesus Christ, God didn't choose the religious elite. He chose the lowly. He chose those, as we will see, that were viewed as uneducated by the religious leaders. Acts 4.13, Now when they, the rulers and elders and scribes, saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now what does uneducated mean? It's not what some people might think. Peter and John were not illiterate peasants. Right? They were likely bilingual, able to read and write in multiple languages, and think deeply about truth. Um, there is a suggestion, too, that, even, that, that the Jews were instructed not to teach their girls how to read Greek um, in, the, in the Mishnah. So it seems like and I didn't get a chance to get into this too much, but it seems like the religious leaders told them not to teach their girls Greek, which means that many of the Jews were teaching their, even girls, to read Greek beyond um, Hebrew. So Peter and John were not illiterate people who didn't know how to read and think, but the, to the Pharisees they were uneducated. Why? Because they did not receive the specialized, approved training that they thought was needed for them to be trusted with the Word of God. They didn't go to the seminaries. They didn't get their MDivs. They just started teaching without receiving the necessary training. What a dangerous thing, right? A thing that would threaten the leaders' positions. Peter and John had not received that training. They couldn't exercise oversight in the church because they were qualified. And so for the safety of the people, of course, the Pharisees had to stop them. But Peter and John led the way in applying Matthew 23, 8-10 to real life. And so the religious leaders came and said, you know, Peter and John, you guys got to stop doing this. You know, if you really want to teach the, the Word of God, you know, we, the Old Testament, the Scriptures, come see us, get our approval, we'll let you know how you can do it, the right, the right channels, but you can't just go out there and teach. You want to talk about the Messiah, we'll show you how and the proper way to teach about the Old Testament Messiah. But Peter and John would have none of it. They applied this truth that you are to call no man rabbi. You are not to be called instructors. And the result was what? That the gospel spread far and wide. And parents were taught to teach their children. And children were taught to study the scripture and given the ability to be a true Christian leader by walking in holiness and knowing God's word. Right? You think of what Paul wrote to Timothy and how he knew the scriptures from a young age and the qualifications to be a, Christ, a true Christian leader. It totally dismantled the Pharisee system. Now can you imagine, think about, can you imagine what the spread of Christianity would have been like if it had been entrusted to the religious leaders in the first century? I, I don't think it would have spread like it did. I th- you, when the, the gospel was given to the people, and it spread far and wide, if the religious leaders were in charge, a brother read from the text, when they, when they made a proselyte, they made him twice as much a child of hell. And they were so concerned with their authority, their position, the importance of it, that they would not have, the gospel would not have spread far and wide. 
Because you would have had to go through those channels, and only those men would have been able to then be teachers. And Paul brought the gospel to everyone. So instead of being entrusted to the religious leaders of the day, it was entrusted to a, ba- a band of uneducated men. So that was the first century. The rapid spread of Christianity was enabled by many things, not the least of which was that rejection of the current religious system in favor of one that called on Christians to not be called instructors and rabbis and build systems around these titles and positions, but rather to simply live out the Word of God and teach it to others. So one more example then of what happens when we apply this truth comes in the Reformation, especially in England. In 1560, the Geneva Bible was published. While there were many other English translations before, this was the first Bible to be read by the common people in English. Other Bibles were for who? The religious leaders, the clergy. And the same thing that caused the Pharisees to oppose Jesus' new system, because remember, we look at the text, he's introducing a new system here, a new way of thinking. That same thing caused the religious leaders, the pastors, the overseers in England to oppose the system that would arise if Matthew 23, 8-10 was embraced. This is why some parents were killed for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. So remember that, children. When your parents are teaching you the Bible, know that there have been other children whose parents have been killed because they wanted to teach their children the Word of God. It's a precious thing we have. And so into this, this land where the religious leaders were ruling came the Word of God for the people, And Marshall Foster says, It's no exaggeration to say that the Geneva Bible was the most significant catalyst of the transformation of England, Scotland, and America from slavish feudalism to the heights of Christian civilization. Now, why? Was it because that Bible enabled the religious leaders to better lead and protect the people? No. But it was because it brought the Word of God into the homes and to the hearts of ordinary men and women. Men and women who could read and study and apply the truth for themselves. Every pilgrim family had the Bible in the form of the Geneva Bible, and it was the center of their family life. It was spread throughout the land. The Bible was talked about at dinner tables. It was young children were taught the sacred writings from a a young age. And the great revivals in England and Scotland were fueled by families who taught their children to study the Word of God for themselves and modeled the practice of questioning the status quo and the accepted spiritual and political leaders of the day. So those pilgrims who came to America were taught to study the scripture for themselves. William Bradford grew up reading the Geneva Bible, Fox's Book of Martyrs, and other works. They studied, they were educated, they just weren't approved by the religious leaders of the day. And as a young man, he went to a church in England where Richard Clifton preached that was not approved by the religious leaders of the day. So... And great blessings came from that. For the sake of time, I'll have to leave it at that. But if, when you look at the Reformation, especially in England, as at least that's one of my favorite uh, eras or parts of the Reformation, you see that when the Word of God was given to the people and the system of religious leaders was rejected, there was great revival. So imagine today now someone coming on the scene, evangelicalism, right, conservatives, and encountering someone like Jesus or someone who presents the message that he's saying. The questions, the seminaries, the lead pastor role, lead rabbi that's touted as so important as a spiritual leader for the people. A system that requires men to go to the approved seminaries and study under the approved leaders in order to be qualified. And someone comes along and says, that's a broken system. That system that causes the people to depend on the pastor for wisdom and insight is not working. 
How are the heads of seminaries? Now think about, I was thinking about this. You know, I'm not saying all these people are bad men, right? And all the Pharisees might not have been bad men. You know, we see some of them in Scripture, trying, you know, responding to Jesus and thinking deeply about what he says. When they do, ultimately, they abandon that system. So I'm not saying everybody involved in the current system is, is evil, not by any means. But how would the heads of seminaries react to that message? Men who are involved in a multi-million dollar institution, right? Millions and millions of dollars for these seminaries, uh, for some of them, you know, some of them are less. You know, how would they respond? Think about that. I don't know. You know, I don't know exactly, but think about that. And they may be good men, but the people in Jesus' day thought the same of the Pharisees. Hey, these are good men. These are men who are protecting us. These are men who are godly. They admired the Pharisees and didn't recognize the system that they set up was actually stymieing, preventing growth of the kingdom. The same thing happened in pre-Reformation Europe. The masses didn't despise the Pope and the religious leaders so long as they bought into the worldview that, the, that they needed the Pope, that they needed these religious, uh, religious leaders for spiritual guidance and protection. Once the reformers started to pull back that veil, just as Jesus did, then the people began to see the truth and question the status quo. They didn't see the Pope anymore as someone they needed to be spiritually safe. They needed the Word of God and the Spirit of God, and of course, giving the Bible to the people showed them that. And that's why the Puritans, whom I consider to be the best branch of the Reformation, placed great emphasis on the importance of the believer in evaluating the pastor's sermon. The true Christian pastor, in opposition to the Pharisee or the Roman Catholic prelate, was a servant, right, who served the people. He, he fed them the word of God. He didn't eat up something to regurgitate some mush, right? He did the work of carving a nice piece of steak so that we all could dig into it, chew on it, think about it together. They were to analyze, critique, evaluate, and discuss as a body the words of the pastor. Today there are many churches where the members would feel uncomfortable if discussion about the pastor's sermon centered on anything but complete agreement with what he said. And that's not the legacy that the Puritans left for us. So, that's how our text has been applied throughout history. We see great blessing when the word of God is followed. Briefly now, I want to go back to the text again and just make a couple points before I wrap up. So, verse 8. Why does Jesus defend his claim that we are not to be called rabbi by saying that we are all brethren? All right? we, are not, we are not to be called rabbi because we're all brothers. It's the theme of family, and it's very important in the Bible as it relates to the church. Paul wrote to Timothy um, in 1 Timothy 3.15. He said, I'm writing to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. We are all brothers, we're equals in the family. Now, when it comes to religious authority, we're brothers. That's Jesus' point here. The context, the immediate context of this passage is the religious system and the religious leaders. And he says, look, you guys are all brothers. You're on equal standing. The leaders in the world, right, the Gentiles, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship and rule it over the people. But it's not to be so among you. And that's not just some cliche that we can make into a servant leadership course at seminary. That's the essence of what it is to be a leader in the church, to be a servant. 
And how many times did Jesus emphasize that? Those who will be great will be those who serve among you. And he dismantles this system of, of hierarchy within the church. So it's interesting when Paul writes to Timothy and says, the church is the household of God, what does he say right after that? He says, I'm writing to you so that you may know how to conduct yourself in the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. He doesn't say, look, now the, the religious leaders might say, oh, of course, we're not the pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, the spirit of God is or the word of God is. But Paul says, look, on this earth, the pillar and buttress of the truth is not the pastor. It's the house of God, the household, the family of brothers and sisters in Christ. Can you imagine the Pharisees' response to Paul if he, if, when they read that, which I'm sure many of them um, eventually, if they heard him teach on those things, that Paul said, listen, all the skills, all the seminary, Paul had all that. He had all that training from the Pharisees, right? He came from the group that created the denominational discounts to go to the seminary. It was this, the, the, the group, the system that could not exist without the idea that they were so important for the health of the people. And Paul says, hey, listen, the pillar of truth is not you, leaders. It's not you, your system. You know what it is? It's a ragtag group of believers who meet together in homes from week to week and who try to go to the temple to worship, but they get kicked out like homeschool kids trying to play at the playgrounds of the government schools. Paul says, hey, those are the people that are the buttress of truth. right? Not you. Not you religious leaders. And if you can understand at all how the Pharisees would have responded to that claim by Paul then you can understand why modern church leaders would be so opposed to anything that questions the status quo. It's a mindset that causes leaders who preach Reformation, right? They preach the right thing, right? The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat when they teach the law, the law of God. Hey, they teach it right, but they don't practice it. They preach Reformation, but they're against actually reforming the church because that would question the status quo. So Jesus says, don't buy into this whole system of rabbi, rabbi, you're all brothers. Now we can say again, this whole knowledge and wisdom thing, we can say, oh yes, of course the pastor is just another brother. I believe this text. Every you know, conservative church will say that. But in practice, if you adopt the system that Jesus re- rejects, you don't have wisdom. If you think the rabbi, the teacher, is vital to the health of the church, more important than another part, then you don't have the wisdom to apply this text. Right? If one part suffers, the whole body suffers. Again, every church knows that. But why is it then if a family leaves, a modern church, the people don't mourn? But if the, the pastor, if there's even a hint that the pastor would have to leave, people go into hysteria. It's because they haven't applied the wisdom of this text. We truly are all brothers. And one part is not more important than another. There's different functions and roles but we truly do need each and every person. So wisdom takes the knowledge and applies it to life. It causes men to adopt the worldview that Jesus is presenting. The view that there is an equality of brotherhood within the church. Now verse 9, I don't have a lot of time. Again, this is hyperbole that would cause some to reject this verse and not even think about it, but that would be a mistake. Undoubtedly, Jesus is speaking in religious terms. The immediate context, again, is the leaders of the day. This is not forbidding us to call our earthly dad's father it's forbidding us to adopt a system of religion where we give titles and we look to these men and we we give them more importance how the roman catholics get around this verse is beyond me but again you know many if we lived in the reformation times would we have recognized the error i hope so but perhaps not 
You know, the Pope exercised his lordship over the people in order to benefit them, right? He was their protector. But Jesus, of course, condemns that. In verse 10, if there's any verse that would check more young men from going to ministry, or seminary, excuse me, from going into seminary, spending thousands of dollars, years of their life, putting their family through the, the, the pressure and stress of a job and, and seminary, it would be this verse. Do not be called instructor. Hey, young man, the people have an instructor already. His name is Jesus Christ. The biblical pastor is a servant who seeks to serve the people by showing them Christ. Right? Do you want to go into ministry, young man? Get married, get a job, live out the Bible, read your Bible every day, read church history, read theology, and teach the Word of God. Model Christ to others. That's why the majority of the qualifications are moral, right? And that's why the teaching must be a reflection of the man's life. That's why Spurgeon said, if you don't live out Christianity in your home, and you want to be a preacher, and you go far from your home and stand up to preach, when you stand up to preach, shut your mouth and get back, sit back down. Because you are not to be preaching the Word of God if you're not living it out in your home. We're not, don't be called an instructor, right? We have one instructor, the Christ. So, in closing, what remains of the position of pastor, right? What remains of the modern conception of church leader, Christian leader, if we apply these verses in this way? Well, perhaps not much of the modern conception remains. But hopefully a biblical one is what will emerge. Peter tells Christian leaders to be examples to the flock. Again, affirming what Jesus says here, 1 Peter chapter 5. A Christian leader wants the people to grow and reach maturity. You see, when when you reach maturity, you don't need to be spoon-fed anymore. You don't need milk, you can eat meat. Spiritual maturity means that the Christian does not need to be taught the basics over and over and over and over again. He can think critically for himself, discerning, discerning good from evil due to constant practice. Hebrews chapter 5 The author of Hebrews tells the people, at the end of Hebrews chapter 5, he said, look, by now you should be what? Teachers. By now you should be teachers. But you have need to be taught again the basic principles of the Word of God. And he tells them, look, milk is for babes, for those who are not mature, for those who haven't grown, for those who haven't had their, their discernment trained. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. How can Christians do that? How can they grow to maturity if the religious leaders don't want them to judge every single word that comes out of their mouth? They don't want them to discuss and challenge the words of the pastor, to get together and wrestle what the pastor is saying. A leader that rejects Jesus' system will, will not want men to reach maturity. The true Christian leader wants people to test the spirits, right? Look, Galatians chapter 1, everybody knows that passage, right? Paul says, if anyone comes to you, if I come to you and preach the gospel, let him be anathema, let him be a curse. And we'll say, oh yeah, yeah, if the pastor teaches a false gospel, definitely, man, we're going to reject that. We we, we are the church, we have the authority to do that. If he preaches that false gospel, we're going to reject that. But for everything else... Hey, it's just grace and respect for the pastor, and you better not question what he's saying. You better not suggest that every single Sunday 
theoretically, what that pastor says could be wrong. If you suggest that, man, you are not respecting that position. But that doesn't make sense. If the common, uneducated people, right, are entrusted by Paul with the most important message, the gospel, why then are they supposed to be dependent on the pastor for everything else? Why then do they need to to not question what the pastor is saying as it relates to to application and doctrine and, and other and, and and applying the scripture. That's like me saying to my kids, hey, you can baby you can watch your siblings, you can babysit your siblings, the most precious possession, if you will, that I have on earth, but you can't watch the dog. Right? And so Paul trusts the people with the gospel. And so if we have direct access to God, the priesthood of all believers, right? Why do we need to depend on the religious leader for lesser things? We don't. What remains of the pastor is what I believe Jesus intends. Here's the thing. A fa- just as a father makes a difference in, in the life of his children by what he does, not by his title, right? The, the, the leader, the Christian pastor, overseer, bishop, makes a difference by what he does, not by the nature of his position, title, or office. The, Jesus condemns the system of titles and positions that causes the church to focus on the position of pastor, instead of his function and role and what he's to be doing. And i got to tell you, to be honest, I, I feel much safer, I, I don't feel any safer, excuse me, I don't feel safer under the authority of a board of elders who's, who's ordained by the system that doesn't know me, have the time to get to know me, or is interested in talking about their views. I feel much safer among a group of Christians who know the scriptures, walk in them, and are willing to challenge me just as I'm willing to challenge them. The idea that the Christians need the seminary-approved church system is not true. We need each other. We need the church. Okay? We need family. We need the church. We need Christian leaders. Just like the family needs a father, it's the function of the father. Look, you could be the most deadbeat dad, right? Take a dad who goes to work, gets home, sits on the couch, watches TV, is on his phone, on the internet, doesn't disciple his kids, doesn't love his wife, just completely disengaged, right? But hey, I'm the father. You need to listen to me and respect my authority. All right, now take a child, that, that man's child, and let's say his uncle lives down the road, and his uncle loves, it, loves his nephew and pours into him and disciplines him and trains him and disciples him and models a Christian father, a Christian husband. Who has the true authority in that boy's life? Yeah, the father is his father on earth. He should respect him, but... His, that man has no authority to influence that boy. The uncle does, because he's doing what a father is supposed to do. The father, that man may not have the title, but he has the influence and the authority of the father in that boy's life. Now, true servanthood truly is gained by practice, not promotion. The seminary system forbids this, and, but the descriptions of the church in the Bible of family fly in the face of the current model. They're images of a home, a body, a family, not of a kingdom, a government, or a business. Those images are important in Scripture, but not for the theme of the church. So what can we say in summary? Applying the Bible to life is an exciting thing. The more I live, still very young, but the more I live and the more I look at history, which is basically living a lot of other people's lives, the more I see the beauty of applying the Bible to all of life. And these verses in Matthew 23 contain a treasure of wisdom that must be sought out. Proverbs 20, verse 5 says, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, 
but a man of understanding will draw it out. What's the purpose in Christ's heart when he says these words? It's our job to draw it out. The purpose in his heart contains a vast landscape of application and wisdom. And we are to be men and women of understanding who seek to draw out every drop of wisdom that we can find in the Bible. And we'll never exhaust it. How did this text apply when it was written? How does, what happened in history when it was followed? What happened in history when it was not followed? How must it be followed today? These are questions and so many more that we must ask, our, ask ourselves as we delve deep into the waters of the purpose in the heart of God in every word of Scripture. I don't want to stand up here when I'm given the opportunity to, to teach and give you regurgitated mush, right? I want us to think. Sadly, that's what the modern system promotes. The pastor does all the hard work and then comes and spoon-feeds the already partially digested food to the people. But that wasn't Paul's goal. And there's just one more passage I want to look at. It's in Ephesians, the book of Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's goal for the church, for the Christians, Ephesians chapter 4, he says he gave, God gave these, these leaders, he gave leaders, the apostles and prophets and, and evangelists and shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul wanted his hearers to reach maturity, to be the perfect man, complete, not lacking. And that's what a Christian leader should seek to do, should seek to to encourage the people, as we're all brothers, to reach maturity. Just like he, the author in Hebrews, he chastises them because you should be teachers by now. Not just, just sitting there and, and, and receiving the basic doctrines over and over again. So take the word of God and dive into it. Many have gone before you have done great work. There's much to be read in church history and theology. right? The knowledge part, look, we have the knowledge, but we need the wisdom. Think about how the truth ought to be applied. Discuss it among ourselves with the ability to question the status quo, even if it's your own status quo. Sometimes the status quo is right, but you just can't assume that it is. And so Jesus lays down a different way of living out the Christian religion, right? It's a way that at once removes the power and authority from some elite approved group and gives it to all those who have the Spirit of God. Now, this, I contend, is actually better for the protection of orthodoxy and the purity of the gospel and conserving the truths of Scripture than, than another system. But I leave that to you to think about how that may be for now. I encourage you to discuss these things, question them, challenge them. They're not true because I said them. If they're true, it's only because they have consistency with the principles, the precepts of God's Word. Compare them with Scripture. And may we apply these truths to our life as we think about the church, as we are here, as we think about other areas of life that I think we can draw application from this, from this passage and apply to, and consider what Jesus did when he came on the scene and said, Be not called rabbi. Be not called, oh, lead pastor. You're all brothers. So let me close this in prayer. Lord God, I thank you for this time in your word. Your word contains such a vast landscape of wisdom we have passages that pierce right to our heart we have passages that teach us about 
the institutions you've set up. We have passages that teach us about your plan for the future. We have passages that teach us about what you've done in the past. And each day as we open your word, we see a different aspect, a different nugget of wisdom that you want us to apply. And so may we think about these verses, and I've only scratched the surface, and there are men here that can think about these things just as deeply, deeper than I have, and consider them, and think about how we might apply them. We know that the Lord Jesus didn't ever utter a careless word, and while he may have used hyperbole, he never made an overstatement. He knew exactly what he was saying, and he had a reason for it. We must take the truths of Scripture that may hit us in the face with their bluntness and consider them and understand the purpose in the heart of Christ when he said them. So help us to understand this passage and so many more and help us apply them to our lives that we may be men and women who are wise and don't just have knowledge but have wisdom. And I pray you would bless this word to our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name, amen.